Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now. UM-FM, this is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Elves, and kicking things off for us tonight, brand new single from Caribou. That's a track called Home that dropped earlier this week, the first new track in five years, apparently. Uh, We got a busy show for you tonight. Uh, Earlier this week, I spoke to two different authors. This morning, Lynn Cody, Giller Prize winning author, stopped by to discuss her new novel, Watching You Without Me. We're going to get to that in a few moments. And a little later on, Jill Heinerth, a Canadian cave diver and explorer and a documentarian 
uh, discussed her memoir, Into the Planet, and so we will play that as well. I will remind you that Pledgerama starts next Friday night on this very show. I will have uh, Celsi in live performing uh, right on air and sitting down for an interview. And we got some other stuff cooked up for you. If you pre-pledge at umfm.com slash donate, there are chances to win a bunch of tickets to upcoming shows. Uh, full details on UMFM's Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we got another new single for you. This is from Calgary's Misha and the Spanks with the Girls Rock Calgary uh, participants or winners uh, uh, backing them up. This is the Girls Are Okay here on 101.5 UMFM.
are joined in studio by Lynn Cody, author most recently of Watching You Without Me, Giller Prize winner. Welcome. Thank you very much. So at the very end of this book in the acknowledgments, you say you went to uh, a place on Toronto Island, uh, an art space for, you know, kind of a writer's retreat, but that you mm -hmm. spent most of the time looking out the window. Yeah. And, and didn't actually write, but then you credit that period with helping write the book. And I'm, I'm curious, like, was like the idea for the book kind of germinating as you were like looking at the scenery and then you just kind of hit the road running <laughs> afterwards or like what what you know what, what it was I, I did write um, I will I will say that sometimes it felt like I wasn't but I, I did and it, it's just that once I got there I was like I just I just need to be away from everything and I need to have vast swaths of time to think and to work um, and so I would you know I would get up in the morning I'm a pretty early riser these days so I get up do my breakfast and then write for three hours and then it would be you know maybe 11 o'clock and I would just be done for the day in terms of my output and um, and then of course I had these vast swaths of time that I had wanted but but I wasn't really I wasn't really doing writing in those periods so I was going for lots of walks and it was it was just like an unbelievable November I think about that month and how gorgeous it was every single day um, to be on the island especially and um, it was a really thoughtful period and I remember I went there because I just felt like, I don't know if this is a book or not. I don't know what I'm doing. What am I doing with this? I have to go somewhere and, and really just be, be quiet and, you know, unplug and think about it. Um, and so I was just like, I was doing things I never do. Like I was reading, I was reading the, you know, Confucius. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it really? sounds incredibly pretentious. But I was, and I, I was just, you know, uh, reading poetry. Like I was just trying to immerse myself in you know, deep, thoughtful things, because I just felt like I wasn't accessing that in my writing. Um, and so, yeah, so overall, it was two weeks. It was just a lot of, you know, confronting myself and thinking about the book and what it was I wanted to do. And, and finally, at the end of it, I, I did feel like, that I don't know what that was, but I don't know how productive it was. But the, now looking back, I realize it was actually super productive. You say you weren't accessing deep, thoughtful things. In, in your writing and you were kind of looking for for Confucius's wisdom <laughs> uh, how do you how do you know that like like uh, do you look at the page and you, you can kind of see if you're like I don't want to say phoning it in but like just kind of skimming the surface or like how, how do you as an author know that you know looking back I think I was I was wrong and I think I was being kind of hard on myself okay um, and I think it was just because I was writing a, a different kind of book for me it was it was closer to myself and my life than anything I'd written in a long time um, and I was just accessing stuff from my life um, and I think that made the process hard and more arduous than I usually find writing usually I, I have a lot of fun writing every day um, it's, there's an element of like sort of disappearing into a fantasy world that's super fun but I didn't with this book I didn't feel like I was disappearing into a fantasy world I felt like I was sort of I was sort of reckoning with a lot of hard stuff. Um, and so I think there was a part of me that just kind of was resisting that. And the way I interpreted it was, you know, my brain's not working anymore. Like, why why can't I just do this? Why isn't it easy? Why isn't it fun? This, this is supposed to be fun. Why is it work? Yeah, kind of ex exactly. Exactly. Right. So then that, that time away from it gave you the opportunity to realize that what what was difficult was necessary then? Yes, I think that's it. Yeah. And it it was a really it did end up being like a really productive time even though it just felt like um 
Sisyphean. Like it, it just felt like uphill, uphill, uphill <laughs> the right. whole time I was doing it. And I guess, I guess the thing was with my previous books, I always felt like if it's going well, if it's kind of rollicking and, and moving along quite easily, then it must be right. Do you know what I mean? Mm. The, the, I must be doing something You're right here. You're in your here. groove. Yeah, exactly. And since I didn't feel in my groove, I, I think that I thought that, you know, th- maybe this is my subconscious telling me this isn't the right story to be working on. Right. So arriving at this story then, like y- you say, you know, you were, it felt most closely tied to like your own experiences. Mm-hmm. Like how much of is it, is it the relationships? Is it w- what kind of parts of it are, are Lynn? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I was I was sort of st- just starting to deal with um, along with my brothers with um, the fact of my my parents declining and starting to need help. And um, it was just the beginning of that process. But it was it was very jarring like, because it just happened within the space of the year. So it was it was sudden and it was both of them. And it was like all of a sudden, oh, we have to be making plans for the next stage. And so I think, you know, thinking about the next stage got me thinking about death and mortality and loved ones getting older and, you know, all the all this stuff between, you know, families that go goes unsaid and goes unreckoned with. And then if you lose that person sort of precipitously without expecting it, then you don't get you know, you have to face up to the idea like Karen in the book is facing up to the idea that, you know, she and her mother left all this emotional unfinished business between them and she's not gonna she's not gonna get that time back. So she's she's sort of left to reckon with it all by herself. So you're you're dealing with your parents' declining circumstances. You you can at least see that. Mm. Uh, whereas Karen kinda was plunged back in Mm-hmm. In in the aftermath of of her mother's passing, yeah, yeah. Um, writing that psychology, the, like mm-hmm. the like survivor's guilt of, yeah. of some sort. Yeah. Uh, how much did you wrestle with kind of like what degree of you know feeling or like internal wrestling that Karen has to do? Well, with Karen, I I think it's I mean the guilt is not so much survivor's guilt as it is like oh too little too late like she just feels like she's kept her mother and her sister kind of at arm's length her whole life because she had this sort of fundamental argument with her mother when she was younger about you know what her life is for so Irene her mother has devoted her entire life and her entire being really to looking after Karen's sister Kelly who's developmentally handicapped Um, and because Irene is like she's a Catholic woman from Cape Breton of a certain generation. She's incredibly dutiful and everything about her upbringing has told her that's the right thing to do. You should feel really good about that and validated and you know just because you might have had other aspirations other than this don't worry about it because you've done the right thing. Whereas Karen's of a generation where it's like there's got to be more. There's got to be more to life than just looking after um, someone or someone's uh, and so she just felt, as an adolescent, she felt this tremendous pressure to be like her mother because her mother was sort of held up as this paragon of what traditional womanhood should be. So um, so when Karen left, she just kind of made it clear, I, I don't want caregiving in my life. That's not what I'm going to be doing. Maybe it's what you're going to be doing, but don't expect it of me. 
And as a result, she always just kind of, she always felt a little bit guilty about that, and she didn't come home to visit very often. And now, now Irene is gone, and uh, now Kelly needs to be looking after. And Karen feels ill-equipped and unprepared and overwhelmed. And she's like, all these feelings are my own fault because I've stayed away for so long. Right, and there's like remorse tied to the fact that she didn't resolve things with her mother. Yeah, a lot of remorse. Yeah. So not only is she Catholic and she's a Cape Bretoner, but she's also a nurse, a former mm. nurse, Irene. And you have a passage where like the, the head of her nursing school is like, like selfless duty is mm-hmm. like the paragon of good nursing. Yes. The decision to make her that have been her career before she became like a full time caregiver to her daughter. Was that like kind of intrinsically tied because of that experience or because it gave you that opportunity to kind of talk about that role in, in society? Well, I guess both. Um, because I have I have so many nurses in, in my extended Cape Breton family um, from previous generations, too, because, you know, that was the one career <laughs> women could have that um, that, you know, that didn't get looked askance at because that was caregiving along alongside of teaching. Um, and so, you know, my family was working class, so it's not like, you know, women could stay at home necessarily. So as a result, uh, a lot of nurses in my family. And I remember I remember talking to a cousin of mine a few years ago, and she was she was a working nurse, and the nurses had gone on strike. This was in B.C., and her mother had been a nurse, of course. And um, her mother was sort of giving her hell for going on strike. And this is someone who had, you know, been trained in, in Nova Scotia, probably at a Catholic hospital like Irene was. And, um, and maybe of Irene's generation, too. And would, would have been of Irene's generation. And, and her thing was, nursing is a calling. You shouldn't want money. You shouldn't want to be paid for it. And that just blew my mind because nursing is the hardest profession in the world. Like for, for women to have kind of absorbed these lessons so completely to say you, should, you shouldn't even want to be paid for it. You should just do it, you know, selflessly and joylessly or joyfully. Sorry, mm. it's a slip. <laughs> um. <laughs> a telling one. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it just kind of blew my mind. So that's right. who Irene is. Right. So the like story itself, I'm, I'm curious, like, does the character propel the story for you or does the story kind of like motivate the character? Uh, like, uh, you know, plot mechanics wise, uh, and I don't want to give a lot of it away because mm-hmm. there's obviously like revelations. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but like, do you start with like Karen and say this is who she is and then this is her journey? Or is there kind of like, this is where I want to arrive at. How do I make Karen get there? Uh, it's it's more the first one. Yeah. I, I kind of started with it. I thought it was maybe a short story first because mm-hmm. I wasn't really thinking I would write a novel. But I I sort of started thinking about Karen and in her relationship to Kelly. So having to come back and look after her disabled sister. Excuse me. And there being um, there being this sort of dicey caregiver, Trevor, who comes on the scene. And there's just something, you know, he's he's super helpful and he knows this, the house and he's great with Kelly, da-da-da-da, but there's just something off there. there. There's something not right. And I was thinking about, I guess what interested me most was that, you know, Karen's a very smart, capable, competent, accomplished woman, but she gets in this situation where she sees immediately that there's something not right with Trevor and she lets him in anyway. She finds herself engaging with him. She finds herself even encouraging him in some ways. Um, knowing that she's like letting herself in for something with this guy 
And so I just thought, what would be, you know, what's the psychology behind that? Um, and so that's, I think that's what got me kind of on the jury, on the journey to, you know, really delving into Karen's psyche and her guilt with her mom and, and all the rest of it. Um, but that, that, I think that's another reason why writing the book was so slow when I went through that really difficult period was because I didn't really know where it was going. That was one of the things I had to figure out. I just knew I had this kind of dance happening between the three characters. But um, I wasn't sure, you know, I, I, and I knew it was building to a crisis because it had to because Trevor wants something. And Karen kind of gives way and gives way. But eventually she's going to have to not give way because he's trying to take over completely. So the question was, I guess, what is that, what is that crisis going to look like? What's going to happen when, when the two inevitably clash? She kind of has two motivations for, for letting him in. Mm -hmm. uh, on, on the first kind of instance where she feels unease and, and one is she doesn't trust herself with that feeling of unease mm -hmm. like she's like oh maybe I'm reading things wrong I've been in Toronto and yep. I I forget what it's like to be in this smaller community and the I guess the other is like kind of like relief at not having to mm. shoulder the burden all herself with Kelly mm -hmm. yeah she's second guessing everything about herself and all the choices she's made there's something about you know she's she's going through a midlife thing too like you know her marriage didn't work out she left home so so sure and secure about what her choices were and now she comes back and she feels like you know what I ended up doing with these decisions was just like cutting myself off from my two closest relatives why did I do that um so she's yeah so she's just like questioning everything feeling bad Trevor kind of comes in and says, well, you should feel bad because, <laughs> because you did you did make all those mistakes. Um, and so there's something about him that's like really validating for for a, a bad part of her subconscious, basically, that's sort of, you know, telling her to to question herself. Um, and then what was the second thing you said? So there's like. Her relief at not having to shoulder the burden of Kelly's yeah. care by herself as yeah. well. That like, oh, like, of course I'll let someone in to take some of this off my plate because I'm feeling overwhelmed by this. Yes, absolutely. And I wanted to sort of explore the temptation of that. Like, there's a lot of man-woman stuff in this novel. And, um, and you know, Karen kind of imagines Irene becoming more and more helpless in that house and getting older. And she's, she's also dealing with cancer and just this this guy coming over every day and like when you don't when you don't have a man around there's there's always these temptations to like you know open this bottle for me reach up on on that high shelf to get this and that for me um and i think that's that's very threatening to women in some ways because it's just like you know there there are men who want to take over your lives basically and control your reproduction and keep you out of the workforce and all that so just the idea of like you know, letting a guy in who may or may not have good motivations uh, because it's easy and because he helps and because it just, you know, it just makes life move along a little more smoothly. That's, you know, that's a constant temptation. And, and Karen is really vulnerable to it at this point. Gaslighting. There's mm -hmm. like an undercurrent about gaslighting throughout the, whether it's kind of like on the surface, sh she's he's the way he talks to her but also some of the like undercutting like enlisting a friend to create a problem and yeah the, these kinds of circumstances was that like like did you have an intentional idea about 
that as like uh, a maneuver or like a strategy that Trevor would employ or like did that just kind of come about through the mechanics of like where you wanted Trevor and Karen to end up? I, I guess it just came about like I knew I've known people like Trevor no never like anyone exactly like Trevor but I've known people who sort of undermine you you know, just have a, have a knee-jerk kind of way of uh, undermining your confidence and kind of nagging you, as the, the phrasing goes, and, and just sort of everything they do and say is in a way um, meant to sort of throw you off balance, to make you unsure of yourself, to make you feel insecure, and to sort of reassure you that now that you have me here to look after things, everything is going to be okay. So any instinct you have that's telling you... Uh, I, I am helpful and useful and I'm your friend is the right instinct and any other instinct is, is the wrong instinct. Um, so, sorry, and then... Just in terms of like, like did you, was there like an intentionality to like, I want to tackle this right. topic and this behavior or was it like this behavior came out of this character and, and sort of like where you wanted... Right. The two of them to end up. Right, I remember now. I guess I guess it came out of the character because, you know, Trevor can only go f- so far with that kind of gaslighting, the kind of I've described. Mm-hmm. Um, and every once in a while, Karen wakes up, right? Like her friend Jessica says, get, 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 this guy's a creep, get rid of him. And Karen's like, oh, yeah, I guess he kind of is a creep and we need to move on with our lives and we can't just have this, you know, strange man <laughs> coming into the house all the time. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to move on. Um and so my thought at that point when writing the book, I think, was, okay, so what's Trevor's move then? Because his whole thing is, you know, undercurrents, right? He, he, he doesn't want to have to, you know, do what he does at the end of the book, basically, and, and like, physically impose himself on them. He's trying to sort of subtly maneuver, so he's got he's to find new strategies. And so he, he, yeah, he enlists friends. He... You know, and again, no more spoilers, but he... he, I know, I want to dance around this. I know, he performs certain actions that make the world seem like a more dangerous place to Karen than it actually is. So he makes, you know, he makes the neighborhood seem like it's dicey that she's living in right now. So maybe she's going to be afraid and decide she needs a man around the house. She, he makes the... um, the care home that Ke- she that Karen is considering for Kelly seemed like maybe that's not quite on the up and up. So he's just sort of manipulating the environment. Anything that could sort of keep Karen and Kelly out of his clutches, basically, he tries to make that look like those things are the danger as opposed to himself. Right. The way in which it's told, it, it's, it's a recollection on Karen's part. <coughs> and mm-hmm. she says, you know, this may be the last time I tell it, but I've told it <coughs> several times. Yeah. That idea, like uh, telling the story that way, was that like there from the start or like did that come about? Like did you find kind of Karen's voice and you're like, oh, I want Karen to tell this as like some sort of like I'm, I'm relating this crazy story to you? Yeah, that's kind of been there from the beginning. Um, and I'm trying to remember what I was thinking in particular. I mean, I'm always interested when I write a book in the idea of who's telling the story, obviously in this case it's Karen, but sometimes with a third person narration, uh, you don't really know who's telling the story and why. And for me, like there's, there's always gotta be a why. Like sometimes, you know, sometimes it's the narrator's subconscious, I imagine, like in my, my book, um, my book, uh, well, lots of, lots of my books actually, Saints of Big Harbor. Um, 
and then in my book, The Antagonist, the the narrator was sort of he just he was he had decided to write his own story because another writer had had used him as a character in his book. So my, this, my character was like, "You can't do that. I'm going to write my own book." So I'm sort of interested in in why the narrators are telling their stories, and there's always for me there's always got to be a reason. And I felt like this is this is Karen kind of putting this whole phase of life that she's gone through that was difficult and hard and where she questioned herself and where she wasn't quite sure of her relationship with her mother and sister. Like, it's it's all behind her after she finishes with this story. Like, the, the Trevor phase of her life represents a very, you know, specific kind of thing mm-hmm. for her. And um, the fact that she's able to tell it now, start to finish, in book form is is her way of saying it's finally over. It didn't feel like it was over for a long time, and she says that at the end of the book, but but this is finally over, and this version of myself is actually over, too. There are moments where you kind of, like, like you're in the midst of the story, like the mechanics of, like, oh, here's what happened, here's what happened, and then Karen kind of pulls back and is like, okay, I know you're not going to believe mm-hmm. I did this next. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the very end, kind of, like, the pivotal moment she's like i know i people <laughs> stop me and say like oh you should have done x yeah yeah having her i don't want to say like make a mistake but like not do the obvious thing mm-hmm. i'm curious about like the intentionality of like having her like is is it just to say like in a in a circumstance where things are out of the ordinary people don't always make the right decision mm-hmm. yeah i think that's part of it and i think it's like getting at the verisimilitude of the situation like people don't behave in the ways you think they should necessarily and particularly people in Karen's frame of mind I think what she really wants to underscore here is that you know in a way my brain was playing tricks on me my there was a part of me that allowed for Trevor and everything that happened with him to take place there was a part of me that encouraged it and wanted it because I was so you know full of doubt and full of you know kind of self-hatred because of what what had happened Mm -hmm. with her mother and sister and and the choices she had made in her life Um, so I think I think what Karen's trying to get across is there was there was a self-destructive thread at play this whole time and she because she notes often, like, I, I often didn't do the right thing. I often, like, you know, the key to the house. Like, he has a key, and she just lets that go for way too long until it's too late. Despite several entreaties from her friends. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like, yeah, it's not like nobody was telling her, you should really get the key back from him or change the locks. People were. And yet she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah no, I'll do it. Yeah. But but she she doesn't. And so there's there's multiple things like that where Karen could take action to sort of put up walls with regard to Trevor and she doesn't do it. Mm -hmm. So in terms of writing Kelly Mm -hmm. and and looking at care of someone who's uh, developmentally disabled or, you know, has like high needs in terms of care. Mm -hmm. Did you like obviously, you you know, your parents you had some experience with, you know, them taking a downturn and needing care, but, like, did you do research into, like, uh, what 
a life with someone who needs full-time care is like and and like to try and kind of bring verisimilitude to the to the circumstance like did you kind of like shadow someone who does that kind of care kind or? of i i guess i should have said earlier that um like this kind of caregiving has always been a big part of my life because um my parents always looked after my uncle oh okay who's disabled in the same way kelly is um and so he's he's been there in my house from day one basically when i was growing up and my, my parents were also looking after my my grandparents when i was a kid too um so so there was just always <laughs> always a little group of people not always but um for the most part a, a, there was frequently a little group of people you know needing care in our household when i was growing up and that's that's a very cape breton kind of thing it's obviously it doesn't only happen in cape breton but it's like very traditional kind of thing you do when you know relatives get older they move them into the house or you move into their house and you bring them in trays and stuff like that um but anyway after my grandparents passed my my uncle obviously stayed with us and um and so there was always caregivers coming in just to help out with with stuff um just with, with baths and walks just like kelly gets um, and you know he, he's a, he's a really distinctive kind of guy. He's got his own mannerisms and his own speech patterns and his own ways of expressing himself. And like Kelly, if you don't know him, you can you can find it confusing. Like you don't understand what he's trying to tell you. But if you do know him, you know it's it's almost like being fluent in a different language. That's that's what my little brother says. He he says I speak English and French and Larry. That's mm. my uncle's name. Um, so basically, so that's that's where I got that um that experience and so did you pull from like larry's language for kelly then like is that yeah kind of based on yeah a lot of it's inspired by by his little quirks and speech patterns and stuff like that right so i've got a question I'm, i don't think i've ever asked an author about this but the blurbs on your book mm-hmm. uh you got some heavy hitters yeah uh, nice. Are you involved with like soliciting those things, or is that something like the publisher or editor does, or like how does how does that come about? Um, well, sometimes it's both, and yeah. I guess in this case it was both, because um, my publisher said, uh, so "Who do you think we should ask for blurbs?" Um, and I, well, I immediately thought of Miriam Taves because she's she's a friend and um, she's great, and she hasn't blurbed me before uh but my publisher says oh i don't i don't think she blurbs and i'm i thought well that makes sense because she must be she would be bombarded uh, with requests obviously but i thought since she was a friend maybe she would and she Mm. did um and then jonathan letham was that he was on the jury when i won the giller prize oh in 2013 um and so we corresponded a bit and we we met up for a drink when we were both in australia for uh a writer's festival. He's a really sweet guy. He's just like a super sweet, down-to-earth guy who I stayed in touch with. Um, and so, you know, I asked him. Worst he can say is no. No big deal. Right. He said yes. So, Yeah, and it's precipitous timing because the book is supposed to be a, a movie this fall. And oh. so it's like uh, Motherless Brooklyn has oh, finally really? been made into a movie. And I was like, oh, this is like quite auspicious timing for uh, oh, a blurb from Jonathan Levin. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. but I really appreciated it. So in a circumstance like that, you send them the book, like in advance of it, they read it, and it's like, I hope you say something nice about it. Like, how does that, what's that kind of? Basically, yeah, it's always, you know, it's a huge favor for yeah. someone to do for you, even if they're a friend. Because, like, writers are busy, and they got a lot of stuff to read, and, you know, maybe they're working on their own books. So publishers often will, you know, contact them and say, could I send you Lynn's book 
perhaps with an eye towards blurbing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and some authors will say, yeah, sure. And they'll, you'll send it to them and then you'll never hear from the author and you'll nudge them a bit. And then the author will say, I'm sorry, I things got busy and I'm not going to be able to do it. Um, but if you're lucky, you know, the author will be like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I'll just send it along. And I think in Miriam's case, she knew my work. Jonathan knew my work. So they knew they weren't going to be getting something that was a total dog or they could, <laughs> they could have faith basically that it wouldn't be. So I, I know when I'm asked to blurb, that's that's a consideration. Like, is this a writer whose work I'm familiar with, whose work I admire? Then, yeah, I'm probably I'm probably happy to take the time to take a look at the book and blurb it. Well, Miriam Tave, Jonathan Levin and Zoe Whittle all recommend watching you without me. Lynn Cody, thanks very much for coming in and talking about the book. Thanks. Thanks to you. This was really great. Treachery and love are ours to keep for all their worth. The flower of our rise, it is a bloom, blood dark but clear. You hold it in your open hand to carry on from here. We cut into valleys. Raise the mountains higher still As thieves strike like temple bells And ring around our hills We sing out for salvation But regret we hold most dear Like gold hid in our very teeth To carry on from here As old as dirt it speaks of life Lived on the line And far beyond the reach Of any thought of yours or mine Possession is no part of law That stands this side of fear There's nothing we can hold That means we carry on from here Say, even as it blooms Over and up ending everything we say it proves Just ahead or just behind Casting wide and clear We stand between the rumbling cars And carry on from here Remaining after all the heart can bear Of circus wheels that loop their empty letter in the air We spy the hand of God alive and holding out the mirror 
Our every single face within to carry on from here Our every single face within to carry on Joe Henry, one of my all-time favorite lyricists with Bloom. That's the first song off of the forthcoming The Gospel According to Water. Uh, up next, Common Holly has a new record out called When I Say to You Black Lightning. The last time I spoke to them, uh, they were just in the throes of making this record, and it is imminent. We're going to play you a track called I Try, and then coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Jill Heinerth. You're listening to 101.5 UMFM. I look for certainty in older men Then I can calculate exactly when And free up space to live uncertainly I'd like to think it means a lot to me I look for peace when I can take the time And I recall the moments that are mine But often I forget to get offline And often I've forgotten just to be
All right. Well, we are joined in studio by Jill Heinrich, author <laughs> of Into the Planets. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, so this is your, your memoir of, of your, your life in cave diving. Um, I'm always curious about kind of like that point at which you're like, this is what I'm, I'm going to write this. Because, I mean, obviously mm. you're still in the midst of your career. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been wanting to write this book um, through my whole career. I mean, I've been keeping expedition journals as I've traveled to these crazy places, like from inside icebergs to underneath the Sahara Desert. And so I've, I've been keeping notes my whole life. And uh, it just, I guess it's been an evolution to, to finally pull it together into a book. Yeah. Was there like a specific sort of trigger point? Like, like did you do something where you're like, okay, now this is the point at which I'm going to kind of Put uh, this all in a, in a com- compile all these notes. Or? Yeah, no, it's been it's been a slow progress. But when a when a literary agent reached out to me and said, "Oh my God, you know, I want to represent you," it was like, "Okay, I'll get this done." <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. So that kind of helped. It does help <laughs> push it down the road. Yeah. So then, yeah. I mean, there's I, I won't call it episodic, but there's certainly like gaps mm-hmm. in terms of the the way that you tell the story. This is not like you know, and then I did this, and then mm. I did this, and then I did this. Structurally, how did you arrive at kind of what the book is? That was the hardest part, actually. I mean, I knew I had all of these great elements, these great stories, but I didn't know whether I wanted to put them together in a linear way, in a nonlinear fashion. So I, I literally wrote sort of chapters or, well, the first thing I did was I just wrote sort of the events of my life and, and how that changed me. And I stuck them on index cards and threw them up on the wall. And then I started juggling things until it sort of made sense. And the funny thing is, is that through writing my book and making sense of all these episodes of my life, it helped me really understand the whole narrative arc of my own life in a much deeper way. So when you say that, uh, maybe can can you kind of uh, expand on that? Yeah, well, I started writing, and I have written technical manuals before, you know, the how-tos of cave diving and things like that. Um, But when I started writing i knew i wanted to write for a non-diving audience i wanted this to be a much more widely popular book and my editor at doubleday books was just instrumental in the whole process because she was not a diver and she kept asking me to dig deeper and you know give me more personal details and and how did you feel you know how did you feel after this and and how did this inform you to move forward in your life um and she really dug a lot more out of me. It became more vulnerable, more raw, more universal, I think, in the lessons as a result. Well, I have to imagine writing, like, technical cave diving things. It's pretty clinical, right? Like, it's... Yeah, to a degree. Um, because I still I still wove the stories into my texts because I think the stories help people um, understand how to be safe, you know, how mistakes are made. So I always had the human factor, even okay. in the texts. Um but yeah, this is this is much deeper and, and more universal. Like, like people always think that I'm fearless, and and I'm not. I mean, they they call me courageous, and it's like, well, you know, no, not really. I mean, anybody who has failures in life, like I like to frame those as discovery learning <laughs> instead. Maybe discovery learning with delayed gratification, <laughs> and the courage comes from like knowing what to do with those. Like, you can't change what happened. You can't. You can't fix the stuff of the past that was ugly or bad, but um, but you can choose how to use that to move forward and be more positive and learn something from it. So I wanted to share that. Well, speaking of that, then mm-hmm. the first night in your in your new home alone, you there's a break in. Yeah. And 
You can't change that. No. Uh, but very much it seems like an inflection point as to like a how do I yeah. process this and what do yeah. I do going forward moment for you. Yeah, I was a university student alone the first night in an off-campus house that I just moved into and a burglar broke into the house. And my first reaction was to pull the covers over my head and hide. I thought, you know, he'll go away if he sees me, right? Um, but no, he continued to rifle through the house and through my stuff. And even though he heard me upstairs and eventually it came down to the point where I was forced to fight. I had to fight for my life. And uh, that taught me a lot about, about fear. It's the most terrifying thing I have ever experienced in my life. And after that experience, the PTSD was overwhelming. And I would wake up in the middle of the night fighting off my own covers, you know, and, and I carried that terror with me. I was shaking. I was, it was just gut-wrenching until, you know, a friend said, you know, you can't change that. Are you going to let this guy hold you captive for the rest of your life? Or are you going to do something positive with what you've just learned about yourself? And when I looked at it more clinically, I realized that it informed me that I was stronger and more capable than I thought I was, that I was, you know, capable and willing to fight for my life. And maybe that experience taught me how to save my own life later in difficult times in underwater caves. The way you write it, that that impulse to fight, mm-hmm. you kind of break it down into like individual like questions you have for yourself mm-hmm. in the moment. Mm-hmm. And that you're answering those kind of yeah. in step. If this, then what? If this, then what? And that really does seem to come back into play when you are in like an emergency situation yeah. underwater. Well, and I think that's true for any big problem, any big life problem, you know. Um, so if I'm in a cave and I'm trapped behind a scientist, the scientist is panicking, right? Has disturbed the silt in the cave so that neither of us can see. We're both hanging on to a thin nylon guideline that leads to the exit of the cave. But she's the cork in the bottle containing my life. Now the guideline breaks. So I can't see. I don't have a guideline to the exit. My buddy's panicking. And now my life support system is starting to crap out. And I have to deal with all of that. Thinking about getting out of that cave is too big a question to solve in that moment. Um, Just as any big problem in life might be too big to figure out. So I have to break it down. I have to go, all right, I don't know how this is all going to turn out, but I know what the next best step is. You know, first I've got to make sure I can breathe, can't breathe water. You know, next, okay, I've got to figure out how to calm her down. Next, I've got to, I've got to patch the guideline. And if you break it down into those little small pieces, you get celebrations of victory <laughs> with each success. And before you know it, they've built up and you've been successful. Yeah. How do you train your brain to do that? Well, I think that's where the burglary came in because when the burglary happened, I was so terrified. I was not in control of my own being. My heart was jumping out of my chest. I was shaking uncontrollably for hours and hours. And, uh, you know, my jaw is quivering. I can barely speak. Uh, but now I, I recognize that all I need to do is take a really deep breath and literally say to myself, emotions. You won't serve me well right now because I can't afford to breathe fast in an underwater cave when something's going wrong. Every breath is is a finite amount of life support that's left to me. So, um, so I do that whenever anything scares me. I take that deep breath, 
emotions you won't serve me and I just try and be pragmatic make the small steps and then later after I've gotten myself out of whatever that problem was um, that's when I'll honor the emotions and just break down and cry when it's a safe time to do that. So obviously you talk about kind of like the methodical nature of diving like in terms of prep right mm-hmm. like the you know checking gear yeah all, all the things involved in that is part of that like sort of pre-visualization of like if this problem happens what do I do in this situation? Absolutely in fact when we look back at accident analysis about 90% or greater of um, fatalities in, in scuba and technical diving happened because of decisions people made before they got in the water that then they were already on this cascade of events basically that led to their death. Um, so for me, it's the decisions I make before I submerge that are really important. So I sit down, I take a moment to think about what are all the things that could kill me today and then I and then I work through them one by one and how I'm going to um, deal with it if it happens, whether that's a manual thing of, okay, if this happens, I have to reach back with my right hand and turn off this valve and then come around to the front and hit this button here on my left side. Um, and so I work through each one of those things mentally and manually. So by the time I get in the water, I know I'm capable of self-rescue and I'm capable and willing of to bring a buddy out of the the cave if something goes wrong. So I don't have anything to worry about anymore. And that means I I submerge stress-free. And if something happens, I just practice it and I can spring to action pretty quickly. Does that exercise also guard against complacency? Oh yeah, I mean, complacency is a a big deal. I mean, if we're not... um, proficient and sort of you know even recently practiced then then that's when you can make mistakes and little mistakes can lead to big problems right i think you talk about the challenger yeah yeah you know yeah the o-ring thing it's like oh well that o-ring i know it's not a great o-ring but it's never been a problem before so why would it be a problem now until the challenger explodes right and it's like oh yeah i guess it was a problem Yeah. yeah so you do talk about kind of like what led you to the water, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily like, you know, someone who's like, oh, I'm kind of interested in, interested in scuba diving doesn't necessarily like quit their job and become like, <laughs> you know, diver. an undersea <laughs> adventurer. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. In in terms of taking that leap, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. because like you say, you know, you had a job, you were yep. working in a, in a in a firm with, with some other creatives and yep. had yeah. relatively, you know, air quote, successful life. Yeah. I Well, the funny thing is, I mean, I had a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Visual Communications Design. I had a little ad agency, and, and it was successful. It was great. Um, but I was teaching scuba nights and weekends, and that was my, my hobby, my passion. And I was sitting inside those four walls one day and just thought, I have this backwards. You know, I, I'm making a ton of money, and it's a great career, but uh, I'm not happy I'm always trying to find the fastest way out of the office to go diving. So why don't I turn it around? Why don't I find a way to be creative underwater? And so I slowly built a hybrid career of writing and photography and underwater cinematography. And sometimes I worked for people. Sometimes I pitched my own projects to Nat Geo or educational institutions. I became a, you know, a test pilot. I helped develop new technologies. And um, uh, so I built that that career out of the things that I love doing and 
if I wasn't particularly busy in one aspect, like shooting underwater, then I would do a little bit more teaching of, of you know, these elite levels of diving. And, and by putting that together, I had control of my own schedule, control of my own life, and, um, and I was doing what I love. Is it, I mean, it's obviously less predictable. Than than a you know advertising firm. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, I still never know where the next paycheck's coming from. But you know, in the wisdom of of you know now being fifty four years old, I I used to be stressed if I was too busy and stressed if I wasn't busy enough. And like, isn't that the life of anyone in university, right? <laughs> you know, you're never going to get it all done. <laughs> so just prioritize. But um, but now I recognize, I trust, you know, that that I. I work hard. I do good work, and it's all going to work itself out, and it does. So that gives me a chance to enjoy the space in between a little bit more now, and allow myself to let down my guard, relax, go have some fun, and and trust that if a job doesn't drop in my lap, I'll make one. You know, I'll pitch something, I'll write something, I'll create a new asset to sell online, and and you know, in today's world, like so many people are going to be in these kinds of hybrid careers um, in this gig economy. But the great thing is, you know, we are connected by this global, you know, interconnectivity of the internet. And there are fewer and fewer gatekeepers. You don't have to pitch like the head of National Geographic to make a television program. Just make the damn thing and put it up on the internet. (laughs) There are lots of platforms that allow you to be your own executive producer and you don't need anyone's permission to do something. So that's exciting, I think. You mentioned the internet. Yep. In, I think about like the 2000 chapter, you talk about uh, internet trolls. And I mean, mm-hmm. these must be like very early trolls. In very terms early of the trolls. Internet. <laughs> and particularly, you know, yeah. it's within this very subset of the internet that is, uh, you know, mm-hmm. cave dive and, and yeah. you know, I- extreme diving people. Yeah. Um, I have to imagine if you're at conferences, like it's not a faceless internet person, right? Like, like on yeah. Twitter, it's not an egg. Yeah, you likely have swum the same caves or rub shoulders at conferences mm-hmm. with these exact people. Yeah, and I'm curious about the dynamic of that because you know, very often we don't know or meet the people that are the bullies, the trolls, the bullies online. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I chose not to name um, those those particular individuals in the book, but just to talk about what happened. But yeah, I got sent body bags, and and it was just an absolutely cruel thing. On the on the eve of one of the most important projects of my life, I received a package of body bags with a handwritten note from a guy who put it on his company letterhead. So he wasn't trying to hide. Um, and he you know he trolled me on the internet like crazy before that. And the body bags were like. You know, clean up the cave when you're done with your uh, with your party there, and I, it was like totally unnerving. Um, but yeah, we collected about three inches thick of of just horrible bullying um, messages before that project to the point where we actually went to a psychologist and said, "Is this you know sociopath someone we should be worried about?" You know in terms of like keeping them off the property, <laughs> you know? And uh, yeah, it was, it, that's tough. That's tough. It, the community, like it's, because you do talk about kind of the interconnectivity of this community that like if someone dies, someone mm-hmm. else has to go down and retrieve the body. That mm-hmm. there is like, 
yeah. a collegiality or a fraternity to this. Yeah. But know. at the same time, like these things happen where, and, and I think you talked about there was someone who sort of sabotaged yeah. a guideline. Or yeah, yeah, sabotaged that, that same project. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to describe for people who aren't in the community, but I guess, you know, if you think about mountain climbers, it's not all that different. Um, where there is some competition for, you know, getting to the top of Everest, right, or exploring a new cave or, you know, pushing some frontier. Um, but if somebody loses their life, there are very few practitioners that are skilled enough to go retrieve their remains. And that's when the community is actually at its finest, where we gather together and support each other and, and um, take care of the, the task at hand. It's it's horrible. I mean, nobody should ever have to, you know, hold the body of their dead friend or write a eulogy for their funeral, like, you know, 50 years too early, you know. Um, and I've had to do that a lot. Um, but it's just something that we do in the community because we are ultimately bonded by a love of the same thing, a passionate for this crazy, crazy sport of cave diving. But that passion can obviously become incendiary in some Yeah, at, at times. Yeah, I guess, you know, it takes a certain kind of person to, to ever go into these environments in the first place. And so, yeah, we're leaders. We're pretty damn opinionated. And, um, yeah, so I guess that, that has, you know, good people and bad people like any facet of society. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, obviously, you're a woman, mm-hmm. woman cave diver, but obviously, you know, throwing woman in front of cave diver mm-hmm. automatically mm-hmm. makes it something else, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than just yeah. the practice. Yeah. Uh, and you talk about, you know, someone kind of trying to like back you up online, but yeah. in, in an offhanded manner says, oh, she just made the like longest thing, the woman's yeah. cave diving record. And it's like, well... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I on one particular dive where I, you know, laid some line into a new frontier and it was it was actually I'd gone deeper into into caves than any woman in history. But that was probably one of the you know top few cave dives ever done by anybody. Period. But yeah. But yeah, it was definitely uh, oftentimes noted as being, you know, a woman's accomplishment. Um but, you know, I look forward to a time when we don't need to have a Women Divers Hall of Fame that I'm a member of. <laughs> right now we still do. It's very much a, a male-dominated niche sport still. But we're working on it. We're working on it one step at a time. There's no reason why it should have anything to do with gender. Yeah. Right. I mean, the the technical aspects of it are such that it's... Mm-hmm. A human pursuit. It is, yeah. But, you know, I, it's just <laughs> sometimes I say we're only a few funerals away from a complete revolution in this world, right? <laughs> like It's like the old ways kind of die off with the, with the older generations. And, you know, today when I go to a school, and, I, and I've spent time in, in Winnipeg schools recently uh, with kids of all ages, and, and when a young boy who's seven years old, who's a first-generation Canadian from a culture that's different than mine, comes running up to me and hugs me and says, I want to be you when I grow up. Then I go, hey, you know, it's okay. It's okay. It's it's changing. It's fantastic. Right. Yeah. So you talked about the gig economy and kind of mm-hmm. creating your own, you know, avenues. Yeah. One of the things in the latter part of the book and obviously sort of in the more recent years of your life is as a water advocate mm-hmm. and yeah. and using your avocation as as an outlet for that or like yeah. a throughway for it yeah um obviously you're you're 
your interest is intrinsically tied to water. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of like conservation efforts or, mm-hmm. or education efforts around it, I mean, yeah. there are definitely people who dive just for the sheer thrill of it. Yeah. 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 That's not me. Um, I, I want to have a purpose to, to what I'm doing. And that's more and more important to me with every dive that I do. Like if I'm going to take a great risk, I want to know that there's a reward beyond my own, you know, self-satisfaction. It has to be something that's meaningful to humanity. And so I started something called the We Are Water Project because I'm this, you know, canary in the coal mine swimming through the veins of Mother Earth and you're drinking water. And and I see what's happening to our water resources. And, and that message for me is also really expanded to to talking to people about climate change because I do so much work in the polar regions too. And I see how quickly our, you know, icy north is changing. And um, I feel compelled to bring back the pictures and the video and talk about it and help people to visualize these abstract concepts that they might not otherwise connect to. Right. You, in in the end of the book, go to Antarctica and try to get to B-15. The Yeah. Well, that's actually, yeah, at the beginning of the book, I'm in B-15 inside. Well, and then you come back to it, right? Because yeah. you kind of set it up as like, here I am. Yeah. How well, did I the, get here? Right? Yeah. At the very end of the book, I'm actually in a cabin in the Arctic um, getting ready to dive with a polar bear. True enough. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I guess yeah. kind of like the last yeah. big chapter mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the the Antarctic expedition, mm-hmm. right? And it it's an iceberg that's broken away from Antarctica. Yeah. Like yeah. by its nature, that's part of a, mm-hmm. a climate change. Yeah, the B-15 iceberg was the largest moving object on the planet, the largest moving object ever seen on our planet, the size of Jamaica. And when it broke away from the uh, Ross Ice Shelf, I pitched to National Geographic to go be the first team to ever cave dive inside an iceberg and see what was in there. You know, was there life? What was the whole geography of the ice like? And when something the size of Jamaica breaks away from Antarctica, does the wildlife go with it? You know, So, so yeah, that was an was amazing opportunity to explore that environment. But you were in the midst of essentially like climate change changing. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, actively, right? Because you go to me. dive and... <laughs> The, the parameters of what you're diving in change as you're diving it. Yeah, yeah. Ice is a is a scary thing because it's always shifting, cracking, melting, changing. And um, yeah, I was inside the iceberg when the doorway I'd gone into calved and closed. Had to find another way out. I was inside the iceberg trapped under just ferocious currents that were like walking against a hurricane force wind. Um, so yeah, yeah, it it, when you have an experience that's so visceral and raw, and that you know that was almost twenty years ago, and I could I could recount that dive second by second, um, you know I remember it so clearly. But I also remember thinking, wow, this is you know this is just one small piece of our changing planet. I feel like a a flea on the back of the planet here, but at the same time I, I'm experiencing something incredibly important that illustrates what's happening to our world. That vivid recollection brings me back to a question I wanted to ask. Because you mm. talked about, you know, you kept logs of all your dives. Yeah. And you were able to kind of pull from those to mm. then write the book. But your editor said, you know, write feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, like, how detailed were those logs that you were able to well, recall these things? Or, like, did you have to kind of, like, backfill feeling? No, I actually kept expedition journals on all of those really iconic expeditions. And the expedition journals were never meant for anyone 
except me. Mm. <laughs> I wasn't intending ever to share those. And so they were just chock full of feelings and doubts and revelations and everything else. And so I, when I dug those out, it was, it was almost like reading someone else's book at times. It was like, oh, God, I forgot that. Like, it's amazing what your brain chooses to, to keep and what it kind of sets aside and lets go of over the years. And, and going back into those was really interesting and, and important for me to, to have to be able to write the book. You said revelations. Were there things you learned about yourself in reading yeah. those old logs? Oh, my God. It's so interesting to look back and see what your 30-year-old self was like, you know, <laughs> 25 years down the road. Um, and and those those doubts and, and um, you know, I think I'm just, there's a lot more wisdom now. I, I'm so much more comfortable in my own skin. Uh, and there were so many times that I never thought I'd be able to put together this life, this career. Yeah. Was that a product of like the outside forces, like the online bullies and the... It's a, it's a little bit of both. I mean, it, I look back to like early on in diving, I thought maybe I want to be a commercial diver. I'll go do a commercial diving workshop for a weekend and find out. So I go sign up for a workshop, spend some money to do it. And then day one on the workshop, the instructor comes right up to me and he says, look, there's no room for women in commercial diving. If you want to go train some dolphins, you know, there's other ways to do that. And it literally just slammed the door. It was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm in the wrong room kind of thing, right? <laughs> like, and, and when you're even younger, like when mom says, there's no Canadian space program and, you know, there are no girl astronauts, you know, you go, oh, okay, door slammed, can't be an astronaut. Um, where now I'd go, you know, screw that. Of course I can. I could be anything I damn well please. I just have to study, work hard, do a little research, practice, whatever. Um, so I'm way more confident <laughs> than that younger self. Do you see like a second book at some point? Like, do you see like kind of? Yeah, yeah. I'm already on contract for a second one. So. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I've got, yeah, I've got another, you know, adult nonfiction and two kids books uh, on in the works. I'm still not sure exactly where I'm going with the next uh, adult nonfiction. It'll take a bit of time, but I've got a lot of, I wrote two books in the process of writing one, so there's a lot of adventures left and a lot of life lessons. When you say you wrote two books in the process <laughs> of writing one, meaning like you had so much material that like it had to be whittled down to what's in this book? That was my strategy because I thought, okay, my editor's not a diver. I need her to understand everything about my world. And, and so I literally wrote about the coolest expeditions, the best dives, the worst dives, and I gave her like, almost 200,000 words, which is like two books. <laughs> and I said, I'd rather write more. And then you say, this is interesting. That's not interesting. Chuck this, do that. Um, then not write enough and have to pad things, you mm -hmm. know, thought it felt more natural to overwrite and then cut. Is that a, like in, tied to the, the preparation before a dive that like you'd rather be over prepared than yeah I'll, I think it's a little bit that and I think it's also filmmaking like in filmmaking we tend to shoot the uh three to one at least in in most like if someone's making a movie they would expect to have three times as much footage to cut down to make the movie when you're making a documentary especially an expeditionary adventure thing it's at least 10 to one mm. and so I think I was just 
shooting a movie in that sense, knowing that I would later be able to decide, is this linear, is this nonlinear, what goes, what's not interesting, what resonates, um, what's the arc of the narrative. So conceivably some of those like gaps in the years and stuff, th- those are some of those That's where we excises. just forget it. Yeah. 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 As for the children's books, mm-hmm. what, uh, what can, can you say anything about what they'll be? Uh, well, I, I have one. It's getting closer. Um, it's called The Aquanaut. And so, yeah, it's, a, it's, uh, it's about my younger, youngest self, really, and, and how this all happened. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Well, the current book, <laughs> the one you can get your hands on, is called Into the Planet. Jill Heiner, thanks very much for sitting down and talking about it. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much.
back here on Thank God It's Free Range, and you just heard Walrus with Mr. Insecure. That's off of their brand new record. Before that, Andre Ethier is back. That was Croak in the Weeds, and we started that set off with a new single from Lev Snow. That was Someday Soon. Dive have a new record on Captured Tracks, getting into it, and uh, really dug this tune. It's called For the Guilty. Hope you enjoy this and stick around for After 8 Radio coming up after. Thank God it's for you. And here on 101.5 UMFM. <laughs> 